This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 2nd, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Good morning, everyone. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, if you want to follow along. It's also on the screen. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whatever it is, love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same events happen to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy the life, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, wouldn't it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you for being with us this morning. Yes, we are still in Ecclesiastes. Almost done. There's only about three sermons left. So good job being depressed and then encouraged every Sunday, hopefully. I'm going to pray, ask God to do what only He can do by His Spirit. So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise You for You are good, You are great, You are generous, and You are gracious. Lord, Your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. Just when we think You are not working, Lord, You are. Despite what we see, You are there. Despite what we feel, You are active, bringing about Your perfect plan to fulfillment of which no man can thwart. And so we thank You, Lord. We come before You in confidence, not because we are worthy in ourselves, but because through Your Son, Jesus, You have made a way for us to be worthy. 
We are covered in His blood. We are covered in His righteousness. And we come before You as Your adopted children pleading with You and asking You to give us, Father, desires of our hearts or change the desires of our hearts so that we align with You. For we know, Lord, that You are a good Father who desires to give us Your best and You are Almighty God who has the power to make sure that happens. And yet, Father, I know and admit and confess that we are not a very joyful people. That we are easily despaired by big and little things. And so this morning, Lord, as we consider the emptiness of life, I pray You will not let us stay there, but Father, that You will turn our eyes toward You. Remind us of where joy is found now and where joy will be found someday in Your presence where all is restored. The older I get and the more days that pass, Father, I desire more greatly the return of Your Son, Jesus Christ. So please, come quickly, Jesus. This morning, Holy Spirit, would You stir our hearts? Would You speak through the words that that I have prepared, even if they're different words than I have prepared? Bring to our hearts, Lord, only what You can do. Words of conviction, words of comfort, words of instruction, but bring us all to the place where there is true hope found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So, as I said in my prayer, if we can be honest for a minute, I don't know how many of us would describe ourselves as joyful people. I think for the most part, most people, and I would even include Christians, are people of little joy. At least by what we see. I'm not talking about circumstantial happiness, but that deep abiding joy that governs us in every circumstance. Even though life does at times, and especially this time of year with graduations and things of that nature, life just kind of naturally brings extraordinary occasions for joyful celebration. I think for the most part, joy escapes us as an ordinary everyday disposition. And this is why I think most of us, when we hear the Apostle Paul writing from a jail cell saying, Rejoice in the Lord! And again I say rejoice, we go, how do you do that? I think we have to choose joy because unfortunately joy rarely chooses us. Most of us are people of little joy and maybe are better described as people of a lot of anxiety. Right? Maybe this isn't you. But it feels as if my mind, our minds are full and our hearts are very heavy laden because of the stresses of life. I think we ignore Jesus' warning in His Sermon on the Mount. We worry a ton about what we're going to eat and what we're going to drink and what we're going to wear and what we're going to do. And He said, don't! I think we're often putting our minds towards imagining the future. Maybe at the expense of the moment. Wrongly assuming that tomorrow is even going to come. We're anxious about the economy. We're stressed about politics. We're worried about work. We're concerned about our health. We're fearful for our kids. We're troubled with relationships. That's the stuff that fills our minds. If we're honest. I think for the most part, we fret about the things that we cannot control and we lose out on the joy on the things that are right in front of us. 
Essentially, we're so anxious about finding life that we never perhaps live the life that has found us. And then you read a book like Ecclesiastes, and you go, oh, it all makes sense, right? It all makes sense. The, the dots connect. And we go, yeah, right. I'm not sure it makes me feel better or worse. Herman Melville, which this is the English teacher in me, Moby Dick, Billy Budd, great short story. Is this thing going to work, Joel? I don't think it is. There we go. This is a quote he said. The sun hides not the ocean, which is the dark side of this earth, which is two-thirds of this earth. So therefore, that mortal man who hath more joy than sorrow in him, that mortal man cannot be true. Not true or undeveloped. With books the same. The truest of all men was the man of sorrows. That's Jesus. And the truest of all books is Solomon's. And Ecclesiastes is the fine hammered steel of woe. The truest of all books, and yet in this truest of all books, it tells us, as Melville seems to say, there's more sorrow in life than joy. And if you don't believe that, he says, you're not really living in reality. Genesis 3 tells us in the very beginning that life kind of took a turn. That it's darker than it ought to be. It's more painful than it ought to be. It's harder than it ought to be because of sin. This has been Solomon's message in Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, he's like, look, I've looked at the world. I've looked at every part of it. It's bad. It doesn't fill the emptiness in me. I've tried it all. So this has been Solomon's word, but this isn't God's final word. It's often been said that Ecclesiastes asks the questions that the Gospel provides answers to. So God, through Solomon, I believe, intends for us to see life under the sun for what it is in order to direct our eyes above it. Ecclesiastes prepares us for real life, right? He destroys all the false hope. He clears away all the foolish expectations and he turns his readers into realists. Let's be real about life. But there's a really important point that I hope we'll, hopefully we'll kind of explain today that it's true Ecclesiastes paints a pretty unvarnished, somewhat ugly picture of life. But like anything, with those heavy, dark shades and shadows, that actually helps us to see the light and beauty of real joy. Where you're at, not where you're not. Right? That's, that's the message of Ecclesiastes. Oh, joy must be over there. Joy is when I have that. If I could only be this, I would have joy. That's the whole point. He's like, no! You can actually have joy here. Where you're at. And that's hard to believe. Especially when life is hard. So let's look at these first verses. Before he commends us to joy to find joy in life, to enjoy the life we have, Solomon forces us to face once again the brevity and uncertainty of life under the sun. He says vain life often, and, and we shouldn't read that like your vain, vanity, like superficial life. It's brief life, vapor life, empty life, short life. 
Life is short and unpredictable for everyone, he says, and it just doesn't seem right, but it's real. He says in verse 1, I, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and unclean, to whom he sacrifices, does not sacrifice. You kind of get that idea, right? The same event, he says. He revisits the theme that he has visited before, death. We don't often talk about death until our impending death or until death has come into our lives through some other kind of relationship. But Solomon said you should think about it because everyone dies. He declares that no matter how wise or foolish The same event happens to everybody. No matter how beautiful or ugly, how successful or unsuccessful, clean, unclean, faithful or unfaithful, everyone dies. Solomon has said this several times throughout the book, over and over again. It's one of the greatest kind of reasons, he says, life is meaningless. It all leads to the same place. No matter what road you choose, it leads to death. More than that, Solomon actually argues that life prior to death is pretty much the same for everyone. It's a mixed bag of unpredictable pain and prosperity. Both. Unpredictable pain and prosperity, right? We think that we can control, we can can do certain things to ensure our prosperity, and then when we do everything right and we're not prosperous, what happened? And then we think we can do everything, eat the right things, exercise, and suddenly we're in pain and our body's breaking. It was totally out of our control. We're like, what happened? I did everything right. He says, yeah, life's pretty much as unpredictable as death. Because we cannot know the future, as that end of life comes, it's usually a surprise to us, but there's something you need to understand about God. It never surprises Him. It never surprises him. He doesn't go, oh, Sam got cancer. I didn't see that coming. Oh, got in an accident. Oh, this happened. He doesn't, he's never surprised. He sees the past, present, future, and even the possible all at the same time. No matter what happens, the end of our lives will usually be a surprise to us, but it's never a surprise to God. Psalm 139, David teaches us that God has determined the days of our lives before a day was ever lived. Psalm 90, Moses encourages us to number our days. Because in fact, they are numbered. Implying that this should move us to approach life differently. If you number your days, that's not literally count them, it's to say, okay, Life is brief. I don't get to live forever. Speaking from his own suffering, Job declared that our days are determined by God and unchangeable. Our Lord and Savior Jesus goes as far as to teach that every hair on our head is numbered. That's how specific 
our days and our moments so that the Lord knows how many hairs we have or don't have on our heads. Right? The only reason that, that we live or die in the next minute is because God said so. Think about that. The only reason I don't drop dead right now is because God has said so. As Solomon said earlier, which is a disturbing statement, that God makes both the days of adversity and the days of prosperity. And now Solomon says in these first verses, all is in the hand of God. All, and I've looked it up in the Hebrew, and that means all, everything. What about this? Nope, that's included in all. All is in the hand of God. That is both comforting and disturbing all at the same time. Welcome to a God that you cannot comprehend. Because if you could, He wouldn't be much of a God. Your birth, your life, your death was set from the very beginning. But many of us don't like the hand that God has dealt us. So I don't get to determine every prosperous or painful. I can't like, I don't have much control. I don't have any control, Lord. And so because many of us don't like the hands we're dealt, we look for a better one under the sun. The same thing Solomon warned us not to do. Up to this point, Solomon said, look, wealth is great, but you're going to die. Love is great, but you're going to die. Achievement is great, but you're going to die. Moral goodness, being wise and good, that's great, but you're going to die. Like, that's the theme. Over and over and over again, he's like hammering it. No matter how you choose to live, the inevitability of death forces all of us, but it's forced the preacher to say, okay, so what's the point of living life then? Does, is it even worth living? Does it even matter? The short answer is yes. But if you read Ecclesiastes carefully, which is hard, because it's a confusing book. It's been confusing to me. I, more than once, I'll be preparing for a sermon like, I don't know what I'm going to say. Then you open a commentary and you're like, I don't know what that means. Like, that's helpful. Thank you. Like, it's, it's confusing. And that, what I like about that is that Ecclesiastes is just like life. Because guess what? Life's confusing. Like, if Ecclesiastes was written like James, like, this is all I need to do. Okay. And then life will be perfect. Right? That's not what it is. It's like, well, this and this and this is horrible. But try it like, whoa, that's what life feels like. But it can sound like he's speaking in circles a little bit because... He is asking, is life worth living? But earlier in chapter 4, when he was reflecting on all the suffering he sees in life, he would actually said that the dead are more fortunate than the living. Remember that? He said it was even better to not even have been born. We're like, Wait. But here in verse 4, what does he say? But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they're going to die, but the dead know nothing. But the living have a perspective that the dead don't even have. But he does say, like, well, if you're alive, there is hope. That's better than being dead. Because where there's life, there's hope. And you go, hope for what? 
I would say hope for lots of things. Hope for reward in your life. Hope for joy in your life. Hope for meaning in your life. And that's not hope to be found somewhere else. It's hope where you are. Because it's a directed hope. It has to be a directed hope. You see, it's interesting the phrasing that Solomon uses here. He says that for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Everyone wants the life of a lion, right? Lion's king of the forest. Like dogs back then weren't like your cute labradoodles, right? Go down to Mexico and you'll see the kind of dogs we're talking about, like dogs with mange. and like. He's like, look, it's better to be a dog that's alive than a dead lion. No one wants the life of a dog though, right? I want the life of a king. I want the life of a mangy vagabond. But because not all of us receive a kingly life, though some do, we try to go and seize it. Try to use our wisdom as Solomon did to seize a joyful life where we think it will be found and different than where we're at. And what it comes down to is a refusal to receive your portion from God. And Solomon has said that when you try to seek a different lot than what God has given you, it's senseless, hopeless, joyless, chasing after the wind. I like that phrase, chasing after the wind. Because it shows you what seeking that which God has not given you amounts to. Yes, the living have more hope than the dead, but we must be careful where we place our hope. Where we find our hope. Often when I'm counseling people who are struggling with depression, or just downcast, we look at Psalm 42 and 43. And Psalm 42 or 43 is where David is speaking just uh, about his soul. Like, why are you downcast, oh my soul? And it's just dark. It's almost like he can't explain where his despair is coming from. And he has a repeated uh, phrase throughout all of both of those psalms, which is this, hope in God. Hope in God. He t- it's like he tells it himself. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Come on, soul. Hope in God. Hope in God. Because the truth is, much of our despair and meaninglessness and joylessness comes from putting our hope in the wrong things. Is what Ecclesiastes is trying to tell you. Because you're putting your hope in something that, guess what? Given enough time or chance can be taken away, but death without doubt will take it away. So it's like, okay, the living have hope, Maybe, depending on what or who they put their hope in. Solomon learned that wisdom did lead to a better life, but he also learned that wisdom couldn't be trusted because it was just as vulnerable as anything else. And it could lead him, which it did in time, to hope in the wrong things. But before we look at verses 7 and 10, I want to skip to the Verses 11 and 12, which seems kind of weird, but we're going to do it anyway. There's no rules, and it's confusing like Ecclesiastes, so that'll work. 
So he's talked about the same event happens to everyone. Like death comes, and it doesn't matter really how you live your life. It's pretty much a common birth, common life, common death. But there is hope for the living. And so you get this idea of like, okay, if I just take wisdom, I can, I can have a better life. I can have a joyful life. Like, okay, here's what he says in verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. And here's a really dark metaphor. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when suddenly it falls upon them. What does he observe? Life is not fair. doesn't work the way you would think it should. It doesn't even make sense half of the time. Why? Strength doesn't guarantee success. Wisdom doesn't guarantee prosperity. No matter how good or wise or right we are, life can take a turn unexpectedly and we are in life disillusioned and defeated. So you think about just that overwhelming mentality, what that can do to you. Basically you go, okay, I need to, I need to hope in something that can't be taken away, but I still need to live this life. And he's like, yeah, but time and chance is going to ruin everything. Okay, wait a second. You're not helping me, Solomon. You're even telling me my, my, my hope is going to be ruined. Like, okay, I'm going to eat right. I'm going to do the right things. I'll live longer. I'm going to think right, act right, and, and my bosses will treat me well. Like, I'm going to do what's right. And he's like, yeah, time and chance is probably going to still screw it up. If that doesn't sin well. And so, this inability, and this is honest, right? Our inability to seemingly can control anything can make you feel pretty hopeless. Or worse, what can happen? You're not just feeling hopeless in living life. What happens is that you start to believe that tragedy is around every corner. And so, you just start withdrawing from life. You start avoiding life. You start living so fearfully that you expect not joyful things to happen, but bad things to happen. Because if you're not in control, then it's probably going to be bad, right? So what a mentality. Oh, I, I don't, I just don't, I'm just going to withdraw from life. If I do anything, it's going to be bad. So this reminded me of a poem. Here comes the English teacher. Everyone hated poetry when I was a teacher, and I loved it. I remember starting the unit on poetry. I'd be like, we're going to do poetry now. And they're like, oh. And some teachers were clever, like, hey, let's do songs. Like, that's poems. And they like bring out like, you know, some contemporary songs to make them feel better. Me, I took out the old, like, blow off the, like, the 1910 books of poetry. I'm like, no, we're going to get in the good stuff. There's a poem called George Gray. It's by an American poet named Edgar Lee Masters. He wrote a bunch of poems about people. So the titles of the poems are the people in the poems. George Gray. And so George Gray is telling this poem about himself. He's a narrator. And he is presumably dead. So it's a guy who's dead telling this poem about his life. 
And in his death, he reflects on the irony of his tombstone. So he always imagines, like, what's going to be on your... That's what pastors are like, what's going to be on your tombstone, right? I love Jesus. Like, that's the right answer, right? So, but he's looking at his tombstone that someone else created for him. And when, because what happens, unless you, maybe it's in your will, someone else is creating a tombstone for you. And so he's looking at this tombstone that's been carved for him. It's talking about carved marble, right? Let me read the poem to you. He says, I've studied many times the marble that was chiseled for me. That's his gravestone. A boat with a furled sail at rest in a harbor. So it's a boat with sails down in a harbor. So that's what's carved for him. It says George Gray in this boat. He says, in truth, the picture is not my destination, but my life. For love was offered me and I shrank from its disillusionment. Sorrow knocked at my door, but I was afraid. Ambition called to me, but I dreaded the chances. Yet all the while I hungered for what meaning in my life. He says, and now I know that we must lift the sail and catch the winds of destiny wherever they drive the boat. To put meaning in one's life may end in madness. But life without meaning is the torture of restlessness and vague desire. It is a boat longing for the sea and yet afraid. Afraid to live. I've always loved that poem. It works really good with high school students who are afraid to make a choice about what to do next with their life for fear of failure, right? Solomon has pretty much said, by the way, you're going to fail or die, which is kind of failure. And that can cause us to go like, well, why would I even do anything then? I'm just going to like hold on to what I have and be protective and not take any chances and, not, and, and try to avoid all the bad things I can. George Gray lived a relatively small life of safety and meaninglessness because it went nowhere. While working to avoid risk and pain and adventure, guess what happened? He missed out on all the things that give life. All the things that provide meaning. It's ironic to think that unlike Solomon, who did everything and suffered, George Gray did nothing and suffered. Those are the the spectrums that we're working with. And from both, we learn something interesting. We learn that, guess what? Newsflash, suffering is a part of life under the sun. And I would argue, it's not just part of the human experience. It's actually a place and a source of meaning. I would argue that suffering is a tool that God uses to draw us to Himself that we might actually find ultimate meaning. This is what C.S. Lewis said so well. He said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but He shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What is God's purpose with all of it? To be with us. 
to have relationship with us, to remind us that we need Him, that we're dependent upon Him. Revelation 21, God's place is with man to dwell with them. So let's now go to verses 7 to 10, where I believe Solomon is taking us to, to see that God doesn't want us to find meaning in the stuff of life. He doesn't want us to avoid meaning. He wants us not to discover life apart from Him, but actually with Him. He wants to awaken us, as C.S. Lewis says, to live, and in that, to enjoy the gifts and the days that He has given us to our fullest. Because you don't know if you get tomorrow. Over and over again, in the midst of this meaningless tale in Ecclesiastes, he says it probably six or seven different times. Take joy. Take joy. Take joy. Take joy. In verse 7 he says, Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife with whom you love all the days of your vain or brief life that He has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you're going. So Solomon says some interesting things here, and I want to get us a little more practical. He said that God has already approved what you do, so enjoy. Christians should be the most joyful people around. And when I say joyful in the things of the Lord, you know what I'm talking about? Pretty much everything created... Said another way, when we talk about God being approve, approving what you already do, where you are and where you are not, what you have and what you don't have is all in the hand of God. Here, Solomon instructs us to enjoy several different things. Food and drink, relationships and work. And they're not the only things to enjoy in this life, right? But these are the things, he's trying to make a theological point here, these are the things that I've said echo to Eden. The things that were from the garden. Food and drink, relationships and work. All things before the fall. All things that were in paradise with God. And in using these particular things, he's calling us back to a certain kind of paradise. Right? Solomon has already warned us about building a paradise apart from God. You can do that. You can have a paradise of work apart from God. A paradise of feasting apart from God. A paradise of relationships apart from God. And he says, it'll not satisfy. He spent a lifetime enjoying the best food, enjoying the best women, enjoying the best work. And in the end, he said, it's meaningless. Because it was paradise without God. So how do you find soul-satisfying paradise in what you already have? How do you view what you already have as paradise? Right? And I know not many of us will probably describe our jobs, our homes, our families, our situations, our health as paradise. 
How you doing? I'm living paradise, man. I don't think most of us would do that, but guess what? We ought to do it. That's what God calls us to do with the right perspective. So how do you do that? Well, here's the keys to joy. Ready? First, newsflash, joy begins with God. Joy begins with God, right? You can have food, you can have drink, you can have clothes, you can have relationships, you can have work, but Solomon has already said very plainly, you cannot have joy in any of those things apart from God. So before you go to those things, you have to go to God. The book of Nehemiah, it's an interesting book, you should read it at some point, it's a history book, it's the history of the rebuilding of Jerusalem after seven years of Babylonian captivity. In chapter 8, Ezra the scribe gathers all the people and he reads the Word of God to them. He's kind of on top of the first pulpit perhaps, preaching, and then priests explain the Word of God. And the people start weeping as they hear the Word of God. And then Nehemiah stands up and he tells them, look, go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. How many have that pasted on their wall and have no idea what it means? Right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you know? We talk about God being perfect. Do you know Think about this. God is the most joyful being in existence. I don't know how often we think about God being joyful because I think sometimes we think of joyful as like giddy. Like, <laughs> you know, God's joyful. Like, no. Deep, abiding delight and joy. And Nehemiah here says that His joy brings us strength. So, good question. What's God's joy? Where does God find His joy? One of the most powerful places God finds His joy is guess where? In the salvation of His people. In the salvation of His people. Hebrews 12.2, right? What did that tell us? It said Jesus endured the cross. Now, if you're not sure, crucifixion, painful, horrible. Um, the most shameful way to die. Jesus looked past, endured the cross and the crucifixion. Why? For the joy set before Him. He looked past that pain, past that moment, and He saw the joy of reconciling with His people. Of being with us. Jesus said that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who doesn't need repentance. That brings joy to heaven. Salvation. Through the prophet Zephaniah. Yeah, that's a book in the Bible. We'll read that in the fall. He declared this. This is God speaking. I will take great delight in you and I will rejoice over you with singing. God will rejoice over us. With, we always think like, oh, we're going to sit in heaven for eternity and sing amazing songs. And we'll probably do that, but God also says, I'm going to sing over you. Over my joy over you. I don't think many of us think that like, I wonder what it, when you imagine God's face, Jesus' face looking at you, 
Is it, what does it look like? Is it the face you make towards your kids when they're bugging the snot out of you? Right? Like, you know, whatever. Is it a face of disappointment or is it a face of just, <laughs> just joy? Because that's His disposition towards you. Not because of anything that is super lovable in you, because He's chosen to love you knowing all of that. Knowing all the unlovable pieces of you that you've never told anyone, but He knows every single one. That brings Him joy. Our, our joy begins with knowing that. With knowing I'm loved. With knowing I'm forgiven. With knowing I have my shame cleansed. With knowing I'm adopted. With knowing that God knows me, every part of me, and loves me. Even with my endless failures in view, failures that I don't even know of are going to happen yet, God rejoices over you so much He sings. And insofar as, guess what? You dwell in His presence, you experience that joy of the Lord. And it is just as Nehemiah said, it's a strengthening joy. Helping us not only survive the difficulties of life, but thrive in them. Because you know, that person hates my guts, but God loves me. I can't fix this, but God loves me. I can't change this, but God loves me. I don't know how much time I have left in this life, but I know God loves me for eternity. So it begins with God. You can't have joy in anything else without having joy in the Lord. And that joy in the Lord is knowing that He has joy in you, which is crazy. But then, God's joy in us compels us to receive with joy what He's given us. Right? To look at our stuff as paradise. Knowing the love of God in Christ enables us to receive even the most ordinary gifts as extraordinary gifts from the Father. Big or small, great or, or less, we see that we have we, we see everything differently. Why? Because we know that nothing's random. You haven't received anything by accident. It's all come from the hand of God. And so you begin to see some of the smallest things as beautiful, as amazing. Things like food and drink. Imagine God making a world that just didn't have ribeye steak in it, right? Or that just tasted, or celery, whatever your choice is, right? But it just tasted yucky, right? He didn't have to make good food. He didn't have to make good drink, right? He could have just like, think about, I always think, this is weird, right? I always think about like, he could have like, this is the food. Like one little seed. That's your sustenance for the day. Like, well, that would not be very exciting, right? It's not even wrapped in bacon or anything. Like, that's it. But no, he didn't do that. And so like when you thank the Lord for your food or you thank the Lord for your drink and you're doing that with friends perhaps, you view it completely differently. Therefore, because nothing is random, we no longer seek meaning in what we don't have or fear losing meaning when something's taken away. We find meaning in what we've been given for as long as we have it. The Bible says that every good gift is from God. 
And the cross shows us that every gift from God is good. Oh, that's deep. So I'll read it again. Every good gift is from God. That's what the Bible says. But the cross shows us that every gift from God is good. Even the ones that are painful. This is why Paul can write, everything created by God is good. Ecclesiastes already said he's created the days of adversity and the days of prosperity. Everything created by God is good in 1 Timothy 4.4 and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. But did you know that receiving something with thanksgiving requires regular relationship with the gift giver? Isn't that interesting? Thanksgiving isn't one way. There needs to be a person you're thanking. So if you're receiving gifts and thanking and acknowledging God, you are in His presence all the time. We find joy knowing that the, joy, the Lord rejoices to make us joyful like a father. Who doesn't like to give their child good gifts? Jesus says that many times. And that's how the Father views us. Last couple, going through those echoes of Eden, right? One of the gifts God had given us most is to enjoy relationships, which is one of the hardest things to enjoy. Interesting. But it should make sense because in Genesis 3, when everything fell apart, that's the first thing it broke. Again, though, echoing Eden, God speaks to this first relationship, the man and his wife. And this is less about the joy. Like, people are like, well, I'm not married. And you check out. Like, it's not just about joy found in marriage. Though there's tremendous joy and pain. You know that. Who walks around and be like, oh, my marriage is just amazing all the time. For 24 years, every day has been such a paradise. Whatever, you're not living in reality. Go read Ecclesiastes. You ain't telling the truth. There's at least one day it wasn't paradise. At least one. Right? But he's not just talking about marriage, right? But that's the first relationship. He's just talking about the God-ordained relationships that have been brought to us or we have chosen in our life. These are gifts. Whether it be spouses, whether it be children, whether it be friends, whether it be church members, these are all gifts to be enjoyed. But it's hard to enjoy people when they're not enjoyable. Translated, it's hard to enjoy people when they're not doing what I want them to do. Right? And what happens is, left to ourselves, catch this, left to ourselves, we love people conditionally. We all have different conditions. But when... We're left to love like we love. We will love with conditions. But in Christ, we actually discover this radical way to love unconditionally. Now, that doesn't mean that we always overlook, never rebuke, or otherwise ignore sin. That's not what I'm saying. People have twisted unconditional love a little bit. Jesus didn't ignore our sin when He loved us unconditionally. He just said, I'm going to love you and not ask you to change before I do. It means that because of the way Christ loved me, I love a completely different way. A way that doesn't even make sense to me at times or the world. 
It means that whether or not our spouses or our friends or our children perform or fail, whether they behave or disobey, whether they love us or hurt us, we love them as Christ loved us without expectation but with hope. As we demonstrate the love of the Lord, I actually think we experience the joy of the Lord. That's hard to believe, especially when you're being asked to love somebody who's hurting you. And what it means to love someone who's hurting you, what I mean by hurting you is a big, huge umbrella of things. But I assure you that when we press and we work and we toil to demonstrate and to live out the love of the Lord, how He loved us, that is the pathway to joy. Jesus said so. He told us that when you love your enemies, when you pray for those who persecute you, He says, I'm telling you these commands so your joy will be made full. I know that's hard to believe. but That's where joy is found right now. And lastly, I think even more importantly, we find joy in the everyday work that God has given us to do. Right? He said, whatever you do, do with all your might. God blesses the Christian's toil with enjoyment in the details. This is about God's call for all Christians to work as unto the Lord. And God's call is not about the extraordinary though. Like when we talk, we talk about God's call, we usually are talking about big things like missions and church planting or like whatever big thing you think is big. But I would argue that most of the joy for most of the pure people is experienced in the ordinary things God has given you to do. And when you begin to look at the ordinary things as a gift from God, the small joys that God has put in your life, you will actually begin to experience a renewed joy from God. I like what Run Ryder said. He said, every feeling of satisfaction in a made bed, in a mopped floor, in an organized closet, is from the hand of God. Happiness is a deadline met. A budget balanced or report filed comes down from the Father of lights. Pleasure in a delicious meal. The dishes all cleaned and put away. Yeah, that brings me some stinking joy. That was my part. How about the relief of just solving a problem? The delight of reading a book to your children? The blessing of easing your wife or husband's troubles? The fresh breeze through the open windows on a carpool morning? The delightful lunch with friends? The sweet feeling of a comfortable bed at night? All of these moments of enjoyment in our work are gifts from the gracious hand of God. If we begin to view everything like that, good gifts are coming from God every day. Apart from God, every joy is fleeting. But with God, we actually find joy, yes, in the amazing things that we go, wow, look what God did but also in the mundane things we go, oh wow, look what God did. Joy. So in conclusion, unlike George Gray, who sat in a harbor and did nothing for fear of losing what he had or not finding what he wanted to find, I would argue we have to lift our sails. Let the wind of God's Spirit take us where it may. We 
must not chase the wind, but I would say you should let the wind chase you and let it push you. We go on a journey of joy knowing that we don't leave the harbor alone. There are other saints that we go with. And I'm blessed to call many of you friends and certainly covenant members that we're on a journey together. And I love it. But we're on it together with Jesus. Not just together. There's lots of communities that are just together and they do stuff together. But we're on a journey of life together with Jesus. And at times, as we're floating on this boat and the sails are coming, right? We, I went sailing with my dad this week and there was no wind. I haven't gone sailing with him for like 20 years. It was the first time my boys had ever gone sailing with him. And we sat out there with no wind. And I was like, this is exactly what I remember. This is wonderful, right? And I sat there. The water was beautiful. My boys are there. It was a joyful moment. See, my dad, my kids. There was great joy in that. And I thank God for that. And so there's times, like, honestly, when you're in a boat and the seas are calm like that, and you have a moment to go, huh, I doubt if a storm was there, I'd be going, wow, look at my oldest son speaking to his grandfather. I'd be like, batten down the hatches. Like, it would be scary, right? And there are storms like that. But we keep the sails up. And we enjoy the times that come and the times that change. We experience the joy that comes from just being on the water or the joy that comes from being on a storm in the water. Those storms can threaten us though, right? I think the storms are the things we go, that's going to rob us of joy. But I think it's especially at that moment where we need to remember that we're actually in the hands of God. And even if we go down, and I believe Piper said this in speaking about the disciples going across the uh, Sea of Galilee with Jesus who's sleeping and it's stormy, right? Even if the storm is so great that it takes the boat down, Jesus is there with us and we go down with Him. And in that, there's still joy. Because He's the one, by virtue of His resurrection, will bring us right back to life again. Amen? Let's pray.